people are talking so much more about well-being at work now and that's such an important conversation and I think the pandemic has made that even more at the forefront of things and I had a health scare after the birth of my second child I had diagnosed with ovarian cancer and I'm fine now but it was terrifying you know I had a newborn baby and it was a huge shock and I know lots of people have been through similar things but for me it gave me a real jolt to think Mm. about my well-being so that blend of work and life and thinking about that so much more in a in a healthier way but that took something quite big to happen to make me do that and I hope other people get there without that happening but yeah I think that's just a really important thing to hold on to for the rest of certainly my career and for, for everyone is that sense. This pandemic, I think, has really made us all think about that and how we look after ourselves. Hello, and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Katie Lloyd is Development Director for BBC News and Current Affairs, leading the way in a number of areas, from culture change, DNI, talent development and sustainability, to the BBC's flagship outreach project, BBC Young Reporter. Since joining, Katie has devised a number of high-impact initiatives that have increased diversity and inclusion within the organisation including the BBC News Women in Leadership Programme, Women in Tech Programme, the Digital Apprenticeship Programme, Extended News and the News Leadership Programme. Katie created the BBC Next Generation panel in order to get younger voices heard at a senior level and break down hierarchies. The panel reverse mentor the News Group Board, a model that has now been replicated across the BBC. Previously, Katie was Deputy CEO of Media Trust, where she oversaw PR, public affairs, youth media projects and the award-winning in-house film production unit. Katie launched youth outreach work which benefited more than 20,000 disadvantaged young people across the UK. She also managed Media Trust's key strategic partnerships with companies including Channel 4, Sky, BBC, ITV, News UK, DMGT and Google. In 2018, Katie was one of 50 business leaders recognised in the Women of the Future inaugural Kindness and Leadership Awards and was also shortlisted for the European Diversity Awards in the Diversity Champion of the Year category. Amongst numerous other accolades, Katie was nominated for Inspiring 50 UK, a list of women leaders in tech. She has judged the Women of the Future Awards and was previously featured in PR Week's top 29 under 29 PRs in the UK and was recognised on GQ's 100 Most Connected Women in the UK list, as well as being a fellow of the British American Project and a patron of Lambda. So I was born in London and I've got two younger brothers and we're all, we're very, very close family, I have to say. So I feel very privileged and lucky to have such a close family. I went to my local schools 
and again I feel really lucky I was able to just walk down the road to my school the local primary school and then the local comprehensive secondary school and I had the best experiences I made my friends for life they're still my best friends today my school friends and it was I mean I wasn't the most academic person I think Mm -hmm. I can say but I worked hard when I needed to I was more focused on my social life, like most teenagers probably, than doing uh, the work. And I just wasn't the most naturally academic person, but I really, I knew when I needed to kind of pull out the stops and work like the night before an exam. And so that was always my approach. What were your natural interests at school? Did you fall in with more sporty things or creative or the academic side? Was there something in particular that took your interest from an early age or were you more of a jack of all trades? I think I was, I've always been a bit of a jack of all trades and I think I still am in, sometimes in my professional life. But I did have this weird desire that I knew I was shy. I was painfully shy at school, which some people I work with now, I do all these presentations and things don't really believe. But I could not, I hated it if a teacher, I would never put my hand up. I didn't want a teacher to call on me. I used to go very red because I'm a redhead with mm. freckles and I blush very easily and I hated PE because my skin just went bright red and those kind of things. So I was quite awkward in that sense. But I weirdly, from a young age, knew I didn't want to be shy. And so I put myself forward for things that terrified me. So I always remember putting myself forward for this, um, sounds really nerdy now, but this school debate where you would, we used to have school elections. And in my family, talking about politics and the world was like what we did. We just sat at the kitchen table, always debating things. And we were encouraged to speak up and speak our mind and, So the school election thing came up and there was a role chairing it. And there's me, painfully shy. The teacher kind of nominated me, but I also was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I did say yes to things like that, that scared me because I wanted, I knew I wanted to overcome this shyness. And I talk about that sometimes now because it's made me know that confidence can be learned. It's not something that you just need to be born with. I think a lot of people think, oh, there's those confident people and there's the more introverted, but actually you can learn it by just, doing it feeling that fear and putting yourself forward for things and then busting through it and I did that with a few things I then took expressive arts at GCSE even though I was painfully shy and I remember how I had to deliver a sort of weird monologue or something in front of a big audience and I don't think it was particularly good but the point was more that I did it that I really got through that fear so I was definitely conscious of wanting to be more confident and that I wasn't going to just let myself feel like that like terrified and shy forever Do you think purposefully pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is something that's followed you along for the rest of your life and career? And where does that come from? Because it's quite an unusual thing to really test yourself, isn't it? Is that a competitive thing? Or like you say, is it just something that you knew you'd have to build on as you grew into your adult life? I don't know. I wish I could answer that and say something really intelligent about <laughs> what my brain was thinking back then. But I did just feel like an average teenager. And it was only now looking back that I can tell you that story in the way of, oh, I put myself forward for things and that's how I overcame my shyness. But at the time I was just in the moment living life and trying to exist and I guess not be so ter- Being terrified is horrible. Being terrified mm-hmm. all the time is a really horrible thing. Being worried about going red in front of people, getting answers wrong that's not a comfortable place to be. So I think I definitely just knew that, come on, we can't stay like this forever. So maybe there was a quiet chat with myself at the time. But to answer your question about whether it stayed with me, definitely. I have permanently through all of my jobs, put myself in positions that are slightly scary and jumped in the deep end and had sink or swim moments. And that's how I've learned and moved forward in my career all the way through. 
because you studied in America as well, didn't you? And that's quite a big move to make to go and go abroad to carry on your studies. How did that come about? So I, well, again, I had, you know, when you get that moment of, you know, I knew I wanted to go to university and I was lucky to be able to, and I thought, right, okay, what do I need to, uh, what am I going to, you know, go for? And it wasn't so much what I, I knew I kind of vaguely liked history and I think I was better at that as a subject than other subjects, but I found this course which, which is history and American studies at Sussex and you get to go and live in America for a year and I just yeah. thought well that sounds amazing. So I put my hand up for that and I got to go to California and live in Santa Cruz for a year and learned so much. I, I actually was due to fly there just after 9-11. Wow. Due to fly three days after and I always remember I was living in Brighton. I walked out of my flat and I could see what had happened to the Twin Towers. And I was thinking, oh, my God. At that point, everyone was really quite scared about, you know, mm. world wars and what was going to happen. And, you know, so my flight just got delayed. And loads of people said, I can't believe you're still going to go. And I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to go. As soon as they let me on a plane, I'm, I'm over there. But it was a fascinating time to go there and then study history and all the conversations that were happening post 9-11. But I also studied... Um, American universities are very different, less traditional, and you get to study things like I did gender studies and race and equality. And I just chose things that interested me. I mean, you could do surfing classes and things. I didn't do that. But... <laughs> Sounds fun. Um, yeah. And basket weaving, I think, was another. But I didn't do right. that. I did choose some sort of things that you don't get to do so much. Maybe in the UK, you need or at the time you didn't. And a lot of those things gave me a great grounding for some of the work I do now, but I didn't realise that at the time. And I made friends for life. My stories throughout everything is always just those networks and mm. incredible people that you meet along the way. And I've stayed in touch with all of them. So what was your first job out of education when you finished uni? Because I'm guessing in the media world, you must have done a few bits of working for free, maybe some vocational work experience, things like that. Yeah, so my work journey started really young because the minute I don't know what was in me, but the minute I could earn money, I would do it. So anyway, I was like, as soon as I, somebody would trust me to look after their child, that was mm. the first thing I did at the age of like 14. And I had a brother 10 years younger than me. So I used, I think my mum used to give me a kind of pound to pick him up after school, oh. as soon as I was responsible enough to do that. He didn't have a very nutritious diet. I think he lived on, <laughs> on toast as his dinner for a few years, but he seems okay. But I would pick him up from school, sometimes pick his friends up from school. I was just, I wanted to work. And so very quickly, I got a job in the local deli as soon as, you know, when you turn 16 and you can get those kind of jobs. And then I literally from there did every job that you can imagine from working mm -hmm. in restaurants. I cleaned toilets. I was a receptionist. In my holidays, I would temp. And so that's what I did after uni is I just went straight into temping because I already had temped with this organization for a couple of summer holidays. And so I went straight into that and the jobs you get when you're temping, oh God, it's the best learning experience because mm. you just wake up in the morning. You don't even know where you're going. <laughs> I would find myself in a warehouse filing things for a finance company. <laughs> or I always remember, yeah, like no windows and, you know, just in there for eight hours a day. Luckily, I like organising things. So I guess it played to that point. But I always remember finding myself going into Universal and they wanted me to just be the secretary for the chairman of Universal. Oh, wow. Like, Guys, I 
don't I can't type fast right I, I really couldn't like I could do I was like two finger typing and they thought I could touch type so they gave me this recording and they said right we need you to type all these letters up mm. I think they came out several hours later and I'd done about four sentences and they were like okay I think we've not quite got the right match here I was many times a front of house person, a receptionist and, you know, that side of things. And you really do learn a lot about the different industries that are out there and the different jobs that exist. And for me, that was just a fantastic learning trail at the beginning of my career. And then when I, I was temping after uni and I got this job in this print company and it was all men mm. and it was an incredibly misogynistic environment. Okay. Um, there were three women in the whole place and I was one of them. And I was sort of at the beginning, just answering the phones. But wherever I went, I wanted to make sure I kind of made my mark and they wanted me to keep me. I decided I could figure out things to do with their website, their marketing materials. And they even let me work with some of their clients. So Condé Nast was one of their clients. I always remember that. I was really excited because I loved Vogue. Hmm. And I got to work with them, even if it was just on the printing side of things. But that was a huge, you know, I didn't love that job at all, but I learned so, so, so much from being in a quite not good culture has yeah. helped me know what good cultures look like. Yeah. Um, I think you can, like you say, you can take so much from all of those situations. And most importantly, it gives you a good grounding in societal values. You learn about people and what motivates people and what the influences are, like you say, being in a misogynistic environment, but also there's some inspiration there because you were, you know, the Condé Nast indulging yourself, maybe thinking about how that could affect your career going forwards or what you wanted for yourself out of your own life and all of those kinds of things. So it must have been quite um, a developmental part and stage of your life, really. Yeah, I think it was. I think it's that thing, isn't it? Sometimes knowing what you don't want to do is as important as knowing what you do want to do mm. and you have to sometimes experience that to really know that truly and that was a bit of that I was only there for about a year I think but it was definitely a big it was a bumpy landing having had such an incredible university experience and thinking god is this what the working world is like but then quickly I decided that was not where I wanted to be and I was going to move on and I went to um work with an amazing lady called Tess Woodcraft and I'd say she's one of my first sponsors. I've been very lucky, my bosses of my early career, because I went from working in this agency with public sector clients and nonprofits through to working at Media Trust, where I spent nine years with Caroline Deal, who's the founder and still a sponsor of mine and friend today, mm. through to James Harding, who I met in my Media Trust days. But then he obviously came to BBC News and became my boss there and is still a sponsor and friend to me today. So I think having great bosses has been a, a real privilege but also they've definitely acted as my sponsors and they're my go-to people when I'm thinking what am I doing next in my career. So is there a standout moment would you say that has helped mould your interests and helped you continue on on the trajectory that you wanted to follow? Was there like a light bulb moment or was I don't know maybe there wasn't um, or you've obviously listed out a few people there what kind of influences did you have that really set your heart on doing what you do now? So I think what actually happened, the really defining moment for me was, you know, I was in my early 20s when I went to Media Trust, so I was still really young. And having a boss there in Caroline, who basically just said, she kind of let you come up with what felt to be sort of wacky ideas sometimes or new ways of doing things and just believed in me and gave me a huge amount of space and breadth to make things happen. 
and a huge amount of trust really I guess that was the biggest thing and so at the age of like 26 I was doing things like it's a big moment for me was going to DCMS the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and pitching a youth media mentoring initiative so where media professionals would mentor at-risk young people and I was thinking I'm 26 why are they letting me do this I was pitching for near to a million pounds of funding which then was obviously even more and I was thinking oh my god I remember looking up the steps to DCMS there were probably only mm. 10 like a thousand and I was thinking oh my god I'm sure I'm still five years old and I had completely <laughs> trying to climb the stairs yeah, yeah just thinking <laughs> And then I remember just thinking, right, well, you just got to do it. Feel the fear and do it anyway type of thing, mm. which is, had been my approach. Went in and I was actually pitching to the civil servants at that point. And anyway, I did it, got the money. And that was kind of the beginning building blocks of, hang on a minute. I'm really doing some big things that are re- really going to change lives of young people. And this social purpose thread for me, I guess, is the big thing. So after that very first blip job, the printing one, after mm. that, social purpose thread really did start to become very real for me through all of my jobs and I think that does come from my parents they both worked in the public sector my mum still works for the NHS and it was sort of ingrained in us without us realizing and I think that's something I hope follows me through my whole career but it's that sense of even how businesses can have a social impact how charities are changing and reshaping things I think that whole side of things will always always interest me and be something that puts that fire in my belly I guess is making change happen so those defining moments happened in my early two jobs where and particularly with young people that's another thread for me throughout my career so my job prior to media trust I was working with a housing association and they were celebrating their 50 year anniversary and I was like oh that's quite you know in Canary Wharf and I remember thinking oh we've got quite a lot of money for a party really and what's that going to do so we ended up teaming up with the foyer federation who look after homeless young people and I came up with an idea that we'd make a music video with them and play this music video at the event and I didn't quite understand how life-changing it would be for all of us creating this music video because the young people basically just were talented and it was like here's an opportunity to show your talent and then we got loads of them involved behind the scenes and in the creation. And that really did give me my spark of the idea for when I went to Media Trust and set up all of the youth media work there, because I saw how it transformed these young people, how they went from some of them not really kind of connecting to full trust and having had quite a life changing experience. And at Media Trust, I was able to sort of replicate that on a large scale through these youth media projects working with the media industry and then now at BBC I run BBC Young Reporter I gravitated to that very quickly because I really believe that young people's voices are not heard enough in the media and hopefully we're doing lots of that now at the BBC through the Young Reporter work but I think it's a really important part of the media industry to make sure young people's voices get heard in the mix. There's so much to be proud of for you in your career, but is there any one thing in particular that you would say stands out or that you're particularly proud of? That's such a difficult question. (laughs) I think, so in my career, I think definitely starting something from scratch is a really fantastic experience. And as I said, I was really young doing that at Media Trust. So it was an incredibly career defining experience doing that and being thrown in the deep end and everything. So And our project went on to benefit, well, at the time it was like 20,000 people. I'm sure now it's far, far, far more because it's been many years since I worked there. I think at the BBC, one thing that sticks in mind, and because this is a Women of the Future podcast, I feel like I should say this, but is increasing the number of women in senior leadership positions 
when I joined BBC News, it was around 26% of women at senior leadership positions, even though we had a kind of roughly 50-50 pipeline. And then we took that up to 42%. And I hope we can get to that 50% at some point. Not that it's all about targets, but it's just great <laughs> to see more women in editor positions, shaping content, making those decisions. You know, I'm proud of that. And we have as well increased the number of people from ethnic minority backgrounds in leadership roles more broadly, not anywhere near where we need to be. But I think just all the individuals I've worked with is something I'm really proud of. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved with it? So the boss I've already mentioned, Caroline Deal, nominated me years ago. I think it was after I'd had my first son because I remember... I think I was still breastfeeding at the time when we went to the awards and it was the first night out I think I'd had was the Women of the Future <laughs> Award and so I didn't win but I was um, shortlisted in the media category so that was my first interaction with the Women of the Future Awards and I just remember thinking you no know, it's just an obviously incredibly inspiring evening and Pinky is so inspiring and just get to meet a fantastic network of people so I then started nominating other people for these categories because I thought what a lovely experience for others to have I think it just a couple of years ago now I was asked to judge one of the categories so that was really lovely as well because it's kind of full circle having been in nominated in one to then get to, to judge one but I just think anything that creates strong networks for people is hugely important I'm a big believer in mentoring and the power of sponsorship anything that kind of brings like-minded people together but also diversifies your network in terms of different industries people from different backgrounds I think that's just really really important and it's only through networks like women of the future that you can kind of make that happen I have some quick fire questions to finish oh I can't believe we're finishing already I know I, like... I know I could literally Katie I could I have so many questions I could speak to you all day but I appreciate that's not possible so what would you describe as your greatest success Oh, these are not quick fire questions. Really... <laughs> I thought it was going to be, what's your favourite food? You what, know? Is your, what is your favourite food? <laughs> Actually, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, uh, I guess I have two answers to that, if that's okay. Personally, obviously, it's hard not to say my family. I have two amazing boys, um, Harry and Rafi, who are just everything. And my husband, who backs me all the time, encourages me in my career, um, and everything I do, I'm pretty sure he believes in me more than I do. So that's on a personal note. The fam, I'm really proud of the family that we've built. And then I think my current role at the BBC, I love the BBC and getting to do a leadership role in a global newsroom and not just any global newsroom, you know, it's uh, BBC News is such a privilege. Um, and I think it will always be one of my greatest achievements to have done this job. When people come to me and they say, your work has massively impacted me, those are my biggest mm. success. Individuals who say, this made me do this, or from being on that programme, I went on to do this. That's so rewarding, and it's why I do the work I do. And your greatest failure? Also very difficult. Look, I mean, I've got loads of failures, jobs I didn't get, things like that, but I never look at them as failures, actually. I think those jobs I didn't get actually were just really good experiences for me to learn something or things that didn't go quite as I planned, and I'm a real planner. Those are things that could be seen as failures, but I don't think that. I think the thing that bothers me still, because I occasionally still do it, and I guess if anyone's listening to this, that we should all try and not do it if you're still doing it, is sometimes I'm very opinionated, and I try and speak up and say the other point of view, or 
really make sure my voice is heard in the room. But there have been moments where the environment has not been that friendly and I've let that win in a sense and mm. not spoken up. And those moments really bother me and really sit with me. And so I always try and force myself, like I have been talking about, you know, it, yes, it can be uncomfortable, but just say it and make sure you've said it in the room. It's really important to say it in the room. Something I really believe in is that, and also backing other people up in the room when they make their points. So I guess it's not a failure. I'm kind of answering your question in a roundabout way, but something that really bothers me is where I have, I know I've had a couple of those moments where particularly as a young woman in an environment, I have not spoken up a couple of times and it sits with you. So mm. always speak up is the message. <laughs> The mantra of Women of the Future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? So going back to my school days, there was this motto on the newsletter that was treat others as you would like to be treated. Mm. And I've always actually had that in mind in my professional life of just put yourself in someone else's shoes. In terms of empathy, it really is about understanding what somebody else might be going through or when somebody comes to you for a chat that you have no idea what's going on in their lives you know, always putting yourself in their shoes is a really, really helpful approach I have found to loads of things. And I think being kind is just a sort of basic must have for me with everybody I work with. And I certainly look for it when I'm hiring people. And I think what's been fantastic, and I know Pinky has driven a lot of this work, is how much kindness is now being talked about in leadership roles. I think when we all grew up, we were sort of taught, right, this is what a leader looks like. And it was often a sort of man with a bowler hat and suitcase and stiff upper lip and show no yeah. emotion. You know, and now we are hearing about empathy and vulnerability and authenticity and kindness. And actually, that's a strength, a super strength rather than a weakness. And I think I just really appreciate that that conversation is happening more. And it's something that I talk about in all the work I do at the BBC is the importance of kindness. And we've recently heard our director general say that too. You know, I think more yeah. and more people of companies are saying kindness is not just a nice to have. It is an absolutely essential tool in your toolbox and something that people have to apply in everything they do. Is there anything that scares you? Yeah. I mean, we've gone through my whole history of feeling terrified and doing it. <laughs> Yes, that's true. <laughs> I, I still feel terrified of things. I get nervous before doing big presentations. I certainly still get that dreaded imposter syndrome. How do you manage it? Because I always find it comes across in my voice. Like You can actually hear it like a tremor or something like that. Do you have a way of, I don't know, working around it or mitigating it? Is there, is there a trick that is worth bearing in mind? My big thing is to, what's made me feel less nervous in, it, in all situations is not trying to overcome it is just sitting mm. with it. And that's what started for me from a young age. So when you try and say to yourself, right, I need to not feel nervous or terrified. I need to not feel this, I need to delete it. Mm. That's when you, I don't believe that. I think you just feel the nerves and use that. Yes, you might have a tremor in your voice. Yes, you might misspeak. I often stumble over my words or I might blush, you know, it's quite nice on Zoom that no one can see you blush anymore. But, <laughs> um, but I'm gonna have to just blush and accept that that happens to me and still move forward. So I think it's less about overcoming the imposter syndrome and just realizing it happens to so many people. And it, people who are at the top of massive companies still feel imposter syndrome. And the, it's not a negative, it's just something that happens and you sit with it and it's that feel the fear and do it anyway thing. So yeah, I still, I still get nervous, but I, I just know that about myself and then just do it anyway. And I think that's my message to everyone when I do my coaching and our leadership development programs is don't try and think that, oh, I'll have made it when I stop feeling that. Actually, just 
let that just sit with you as a sort of critical friend in a way. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, do it anyway. And if you get that tremor in your voice, Kim, no one else is probably even noticing it. I, uh, I, I, I get that because I say that to people and they're like, oh, we didn't notice, we didn't, we didn't hear it. So maybe I'm overthinking it or the pressure is sitting with me and I'm very aware of it. But yeah, you're right, you are right. The audience that I'm talking to don't always say that they've felt my nerves or anything. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is what you're feeling, nobody else is seeing. So if you also think of it like that, that allows you to just mm. go, okay, this is just how I feel when I do these things. And then the practice massively helps, right? The more you yeah. do them, to the point where you, you are feeling slightly more comfortable because you knew you got through it the last time. So you can think, right, I can survive this. And saying yes to things, things that scare you, just say yes, mm. nothing dangerous, of course, just things that are like, you know, gonna challenge you and stretch you put your hand up and do those things rather than shy away from them because that's how you end up growing. What's left on your to-do list? Quite a lot, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not, you know, some people have these absolutely, and it's funny because I often say to people, think about making a plan for your career. If you know what you want to be, I think having a plan is really useful. Like if you know you want to be a journalist mm. from a young age, you can kind of map that out and think about where you're going. For me, I'm, I don't have that absolute plan in place but one thing I've always dreamt of and when I was 19 I wrote it down was running my own business so I Ooh. do hope one day in the future when the time is right I will take that leap and do that because that is a scary thing to do and I hope at some point in my career I get to experience that but I'm not thinking about doing that right now <laughs> but that is something in the distant future that I think oh that is something I'd really really like to have a go at and I guess yeah, I think something you asked me earlier as well that I've learned is just uh, looking after my well-being a bit more. Mm. Um, I definitely was a kind of a workaholic in my 20s, then had kids and realised, whoa, can't yeah, you carry can't, on. You can't, it's not possible. <laughs> really not possible. <laughs> it's really not possible. But, and I think it's something, again, like your kindness question, people are talking so much more about well-being at work now. And that's such an important conversation. And I think the pandemic has made that even more at the forefront of things. And I had a health scare after the birth of my second child, I had diagnosed with ovarian cancer and oh, wow. I'm fine now, but it was terrifying. You know, I had a newborn baby and it was a huge shock. And I know lots of people have been through similar things, but for me, it gave me a real jolt to think mm. about my well-being. So that blend of work and life and thinking about that so much more in a, in a healthier way. But that yeah. took something quite big happen to make me do that and I hope other people get there without that happening but yeah I think that's just a really important thing to hold on to for the rest of certainly my career and for, for everyone is that sense this pandemic I think has really made us all think about that and how we look after ourselves yeah I was going to say that the pandemic has brought on so much perspective I think because I work at the BBC too and in our team we lost one of our team members who sadly took their own life and also just everyone yeah. experiencing coronavirus either very close to them like immediate family or distant relatives or friends of friends and I think you're right maybe it does take something like like that to jolt you into action or make you realize you have one life and it's so precious and you need to make the most of it really absolutely and you know I remember I'm, you know I'm so sorry about your colleague because I, I remember that happening and it was incredibly difficult time and to happen during a pandemic all the things that people haven't been able to do mm. normally like grieve exactly um, so so difficult and I think 
going back to the importance of kindness and empathy, you know, I hope that that's the big thing that comes out of all of this tough year for so many people and, you know, so many lives have been lost. But I hope that the thing that comes out is, is a better, healthier way of working where there's a more blend. We're not that that slog of, you know, people just getting on the tube and going yeah. in five days and all of that. And for some people, I think there will be a better blend and maybe families will get a bit more time together. And also we'll just all be a bit kinder to each other having had this collective experience. Thank you so much, Katie. And thank you for all the things that you do within the BBC and have done before it, because it makes such a seismic difference. And if it wasn't for people like you doing and saying these things, I think it would make a lot of people's lives a lot harder. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. That means a huge amount. And as I said, I just feel very lucky to do the job I do with amazing people like you and others in the BBC, you get to work with such incredible people. And I think that's what actually makes work rewarding is the people you get to work with. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.